Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast with me, your host, Cindy Parker. I am an author, speaker, and professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day, and I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, I sit down with Dr. Nicholas Shazer, who is the professor of Hebrew Bible at Israel Bible Center. We talk about his wildly popular course, the Hebrew Psalms, How to Worship God, And in today's episode, we discuss Hebrew poetry, the superscriptions, you know, those little headings at the beginning of some of the Psalms that tell us interesting bits of information and the context in which the Psalms were used. To begin the conversation, I wanted to start with the very basics. What are the Psalms? And are they different than other poetry in the Bible? I think that the, the best way for, for modern readers to understand the Psalms is to kind of approximate them to things that we know. So that is, we know that the Psalms are musical in nature. We don't have the notation anymore for exactly how that music would have sounded. So on the one hand, we know that the Psalms are songs. We also know that they are both personal and communal prayers. So they're both prayers and they're songs. And also we know that they functioned in the actual lives of the ancient Israelites. So they, they would have been, used, and we can get more into this as we go forward, but they would have been used in certain rituals, rituals at the temple, sacrificial rituals. So they really were also sort of memorial markers for the people of Israel. They marked their time, they marked their holidays. And so they would have been a large part of, of ancient Israelite life. And, uh, and they functioned in, in various different ways. And, and, and also at, at base, they're, they're poems as well, right? Yeah. They're poetry. So how do we know that they were supposed to be sung? What are the clues that we have that tell us that music was involved? Great question. One reason are the, the superscriptions at the top of the Psalms. Sometimes they will, they will discuss different instruments um, you know, the, this, this particular psalm, for example, is for, is for this instrument or mm. these instruments. Mm-hmm. And then there's also some kind of antiquated terminology that we're not quite sure what some of this stuff means. Most scholars assume that it has some sort of musical reference to it. There's mm. also in the, in the psalms themselves, there is this word called selah in Hebrew. Right. And that in English translations is going to be left untranslated. Because again, scholars just are kind of unsure as to exactly yeah. what it means, but most or many believe that it has something to do with musicality, that maybe the hmm. Selah that sort of interjects itself into the rest of the Hebrew text is used as a kind of a musical rest that you might see hmm. on a, uh, a sheet of music. Yeah. So there are various different reasons why we think that it's linked to music. Unfortunately, we, we don't have the melodies, we don't have the, the annotation either. Right. But most scholars are, are pretty certain that there's that music has something to do with it. Okay, so you also mentioned poetry, and I imagine a lot of people, if they've been reading the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms are written 
in short lines. So they look like they're supposed to be poetry. But we have poetry throughout the whole entire Bible. What separates the poetry that we find in other places in the Bible from the poetry that we see in the Psalms? Is it just the way that they function or is it completely different types of poetry? Yeah, well, I, I'm not so sure that it's completely different types of poetry. Um, you get, for example, songs like like the Psalms. You, you get yeah. songs elsewhere in the biblical text. For example, Deuteronomy 32. It's one of my favorites. Deuteronomy. <laughs> that's right. Yes, dude, that's right. Deuteronomy, that's right yep. up your alley. So Deuteronomy 32 is a, is a poetic song of Moses, and it's explicitly a song. We get the song at the, at the sea when the Egyptians uh, drown in the, in the sea. That's Exodus 15. It's one of our oldest texts in the Bible. You also get, for example, the, the song of Deborah in Judges chapter 5. All of this material is poetic, and it's also uh, examples of songs. So in that way, we get similar poetic material elsewhere in the Bible. I think that the, uh, the main difference between the Psalms and, say, the poetry of the prophets, because, mm. again, the prophets are poetry too. If you read through Isaiah, even if you started Isaiah chapter 1, it, it sounds a lot like the way that the Psalms sound, and it's, it's built in that poetic way. The difference between the prophets and the Psalms, though, is that the prophets have God speaking through the prophet to the people, whereas the Psalms are instances of the people speaking to God. So it's just a kind of a, it's a dialogical shift in, in that way. Yeah, at, at base, aesthetically and poetically, the material is similar. There's nothing wildly special about the Psalms that would differentiate them poetically from Isaiah, but there is certainly a difference in speaker and audience. Okay, so there's something I think that we should definitely cover, which is the issue of Hebrew poetry, because mm -hmm. in English, what we think of as poetry is different. We have different rules of poetry right. in English than they do in Hebrew. So could you explain a little bit about what Hebrew poetry looks like? Because once we know the rules of Hebrew poetry, we start to find it everywhere, even if it's not written in like a poetic form. So could you That's explain right. that for us? Sure. So in, in English poetry, uh, I would say the, the most common marker that we're used to is rhyme. Yeah. Uh, not all poetry rhymes, of course, but much of it does. And the Psalms, uh, the Hebrew Psalms, Hebrew poetry doesn't function necessarily in that way. Sometimes the poetry rhymes, um, but it's more of a happy accident when, when that happens. Um, the, the fundamental marker of Hebrew poetry, the, the way that we know that something is poetry and something is narrative, is that poetry has something called Hebrew parallelism, which means, in a, in a nutshell, that the psalmist will say a, a statement. So say that statement A. And then there'll be, that'll be immediately followed by statement B. Mm -hmm. And statement B sounds a lot like statement A insofar as they are paralleling each other. So uh, to, to put it in a way that um, the, the great uh, Hebrew Bible scholar James Kugel said, uh, that the psalmist would say that statement A is true and statement B is equally true. And, and how this helps us is if we're unsure about what a particular statement A means, all we have to do is go to statement B, and statement B will usually explain the meaning of statement A for us. So 
I can give you some quick examples of, of this if you'd like. We should definitely okay. do that. Okay, so I've got a, a, an actual Hebrew Bible in front of me, and I, I'm just going to read the first couple lines of Psalm chapter 20, because I think it, it, it provides a, a, good, um, a good example. So it, it begins by saying that the superscription says, Mizmor le David, which is a Psalm of David, and it goes on to say, Ya'anacha Hashem bayom tzara. So that means, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. So that's statement A, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And then the Hebrew is going to go on to say, May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So to just go back, what we've got is statement A, which is, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Statement B, which is similar and equally true, is that may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So you can see those parallelisms. The parallel here is answer and protect. In the statement A, it's the Lord in your day of trouble. In statement B, it's the name of the God of Jacob. Essentially, they're, they're saying the same thing twice in slightly different ways. Uh, the text goes on. It says, Yislach ezracha mikodesh, which means may God send you uh, help from Kodesh, from God's holy place. And then it says, Umitzian yisadecha, and from Zion, may God support you. So statement A is, may God send you help from the holy place, which is the temple. And then the next statement, statement B says, and from Zion, which is where the temple stands, may God support you. So our parallels there are the temple in statement A and Zion in statement B, help in statement A and support in statement B. These are classic and pithy versions of what we see in Hebrew parallelism, sometimes the parallelism in the Psalms gets a little bit more complex and complicated. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, Psalm chapter 20, the outset, is really a good and simple example of the kind of parallelism that we see throughout the Psalms. When we translate the Hebrew, the English does not always preserve the word ordering in the Hebrew, which then also sometimes makes it a little bit more obscure in the English. The beauty, like... There's so much beauty in the actual Hebrew, and we kind of lose it in the English a little bit. Yeah, indeed. I, I have an English translation in front of me. I brought this one to this particular conversation because Robert Alter is so, as you know, is so particular about showcasing the beauty of the Hebrew. And so yeah. his English translations are very close to what you just on the fly translated. Uh, it oh, stays good. very, very close to the Hebrew. And I'm actually looking at an, at an ESV. I've got that open too on my, on my desk. And the ESV pretty carefully follows the order of the Hebrew. So, so that's good when translations do that. The reason that a translation might not do that is that sometimes Hebrew, it wasn't clunky for the ancient Israelites. It was, right. as you say, Cindy, it was beautiful. And, and right. it was meant to be written the way that it was written. But sometimes in English, Hebrew can get a touch clunky or wooden if, if English translators don't sort of massage it into something that sounds a little bit better in English. This is right. true of all languages. The Hebrew is really no different. Right, right. And that's across the board an issue with translation. It just, it always seems a little bit more complicated when you're dealing with an artistic form like that's right. poetry. That's right. And, and, you know, in translating poetry, it makes it all the more difficult yeah. Because, you know, poetry, just like in English or any other language, poetry almost makes language elastic, more elastic than it is yeah. in, in narrative. So it's very, very difficult. And in, and in Hebrew, 
it, it's, it's very tough uh, because some, sometimes there are little prepositions at the beginning of Hebrew words. Like you might get a lamed, which is the equivalent of an L in, in English. Yeah. And this lamed can mean all sorts of things in, in Hebrew. And once you put it into poetry, the, the ways that you can translate it just increase. Lamed, la, can mean two or four or of. Uh, you know, the same thing with, with a bait, which is another a bee, equivalent of a bee. can mean in, on, at, with, through, right. by means of. I mean, you, you, could, you could pick almost anything that you, that you want in English. So it, it makes it challenging to, to translate, but it also makes it very fun to translate. Right. <laughs> Sometimes when I have students in class, and we're translating Hebrew, and I'll go, so these four words in Hebrew, we needed 10 English words <laughs> to yeah. get at the same. You know, we talk about what is the value added of all these different words, but yeah, it's That's a right. fun exercise to do. Exactly. One of the things that I think is so valuable in the course that you do with IBC is um, when students participate in your course, you have all kinds of great visuals that you use. And so you can use all these different colors mm. to make it obvious to the students in your class where are all the different parallels yes. are. So it's good to listen to it here on the podcast, but you know, there's a value to going and taking your course and actually seeing all the visuals Yes, yeah, I, I think so. It's just, it's easier to teach. And, and the Psalms are complex, as with most of, of biblical studies. Yeah. But the, the, Psalms are, the Psalms are complicated. And so it just makes it a lot easier if you can put your eyes on a visual and say, okay, well, yeah. statement A is in red. And then the following statement A is in red. And all the statement Bs are in blue. So I think it's just, it, yeah, the, right. the visuals help us break it down and internalize the material a little bit better. Yep. Now, this is only one psalm, but Dr. Shazer walks through so many individual psalms in his course. We simply don't have the time here to address all of them. You'll have to sign up for his course to make the deep dive into the richness of more psalms. You'll find a link in the episode notes. Since Dr. Shazer used Psalm 20 for his example of parallelism, I asked him about the superscriptions at the top of the psalms. Psalm 20 says to the lead player, or some translations say a Psalm of David. But in your Bibles, you will find many other Psalms that give instructions or that describe the physical or the historical context of the Psalm. So I asked Dr. Shazer if those were part of the original songs or if they were added on later. So, so just just briefly, uh, Cindy, before I, I jump into that, you you mentioned that the superscript, uh, and I think that's Alter's translation that says to the lead player, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so in Hebrew, in Hebrew, that's laminat uh, seach, and we're we're not exactly sure what that word means, but uh, but but Alter's I think onto something just to underscore what we said before. That is, there's musicality to the Psalms. So the lead player, or the lead player of what? The lead player of some sort of instrument, I, or maybe the lead. You know, for back, lack of a better term, conductor, although there's not really conducting to be spoken of <laughs> until we get, you know, whatever, post-Renaissance <laughs> period. But, but, but the point is, is that that's just another example of the fact that it's pretty clear that these, these materials functioned uh, as music in the lives of the ancient Israelites. Hmm. Onto, the, onto the superscriptions, right, the teeny tiny letters at the top, were those original? Well, it's a very complicated question. It's a great question, as usual. Well, 
on the one hand, there are early attestations of these superscriptions in the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that's called the Septuagint. And that was done around, just for the sake of ease, say 300s BC or BCE. Um, so a few hundred years before Jesus, if just, just to historicize this a little bit. And then also some superscriptions appear also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are also second temple texts that post-date slightly the Septuagint. And so on the one hand, here's what we can say. We can say that the superscriptions from an early period, certainly before the time of the New Testament writings, that, that the, uh, the superscriptions are there and they're traditional. And the New Testament writers, of course, would have, would have known of them. The difficulty becomes the fact that in the books of Chronicles, in First and Second Chronicles, at several points, the chronicler, as scholars call the author, uh, will interject pieces of Psalms, actually so- large swaths of the Psalms that are essentially verbatim from the book, from the, from the Psalter, from the books of the Psalms. Hmm. And in the Chronicles version, there are no superscriptions. So scholars are wont to say, well, okay, Chronicles is probably written 100 years before the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. So perhaps there was a time prior to the Second Temple period or just at the beginning where these superscriptions hadn't been laid down yet in, in traditional writing. Hmm. Surely they go back orally and ascription to the Psalms by David, for example, that's, you can find traditional references to David as a musician, right? You can see this in, in Samuel. Mm-hmm. Amos also mentions David building harps or lyres and, and playing music, writing songs. So there is that traditionality behind it, but scholars are just sort of, there's a question mark as to whether or not these are absolutely original to the first Hebrew text of the Psalms. So there is a bit of a question mark there. Okay, so we don't know if David put them in for his own Psalms or if someone later put them in, which sounds pretty likely that someone would go, hey, this is one that we're attributing to David, but we can't always quite date when that is. But they're early. Like we could say before the time of Jesus, they probably were well known. Exactly. Most definitely. So Paul, the gospel writers, they would have known these superscriptions, right? And taken them as authoritative because they were part of their Septuagint. They were part of their Bible. The, um, the question becomes, were they, are they original to the first Hebrew text or texts? It's difficult right. to even talk about a first Hebrew text right. in the first place. But, right. but, but you're right, Cindy. Um, think of it, I would think of it in terms of like gradual addition. But I, I think it's important to note, regardless of whether David wrote you know, some of these or, or initially penned some of these and then others maybe added yeah. some later on. I think that that's a live question. But in the Psalms themselves, not even in the superscriptions, sometimes you'll get little interjections about Davidic authorship. So at the end of Psalm huh. 72, for example, it says, thus endeth the, the, right, the songs of David. Okay? But that's in the Psalm itself. Hmm. Uh, apologies for the, uh, the King Jamesian thus endeth <laughs> language there. But, uh, but anyway, so, so it's there. And, and just a quick word about, Cindy, you mentioned a Psalm of David. So most often, that's what the superscription is going to say. Mismor the David, a Psalm of David. Here's the problem. Remember when I talked about that Lamed, that yes. L at the beginning of a word, and I said it could mean to, for, from, of, yes. etc. So Mismor le David is that Lamed. So David, of course, you can hear it. It's David. So le yeah. David could either mean a psalm of David, like David wrote it, or could just as easily mean a psalm for David, 
Hmm. That is, it's penned as a gift for David. And then we get into even trickier stuff because Hmm. David, David, throughout the Hebrew Bible, is used not only of the individual, but of the Davidic dynasty, the house of David. Right. And so that is, we could translate it as a psalm written for the house of David. That is the royal Hmm. line or or the royal court in Jerusalem. So it's just, you know, it's it's funny. You'd think that something as easy as a (laughs) three-word sentence would be right could get into english you know relatively clearly but this goes back to the fact right. that, that this psalmic material is tough to translate right right i one of the things i love about the superscriptions and because i'm a geographer and so i love kind of the placement into real places of the psalms and the psalms sometimes help us do that one of my favorites and i read this all the time with groups when i have them in israel is psalm 63 because it says a David psalm when he was in the wilderness of Judah, which is great because then I can take a group to the wilderness of Judah and then read the imagery from that psalm while standing in the midst of that imagery to really kind of soak in the full depth and richness that the song has to offer. And the psalms are full of all kinds of rich imagery like that taken from the real human experience of people who are living in the land. That's right. All sorts of rich imagery. And and this gets to the to the point made early on that that these actually functioned in the lives of the Israelites. Yeah. These were sung in certain times and places for very specific purposes. And to, to use a, a, a German phrase that scholars like to use, uh, <laughs> there's a phrase called Zitz im Leben which literally means in English, the setting in life. And so this, the Zitzim Laban is, some scholars are want to go through these Psalms and try to figure out what's the original social life setting for these Psalms? How were they used? And some of them, there's question marks. You know, some of them just don't tell us there's not enough information. Others say it explicitly. Hmm. So for example, in Psalm 118, you have this this procession, this kind of ascent to the top of Mount Zion to go to the temple. And it interjects certain specificities like anoint with oil and have it run down like the beard of Aaron or bind the festal sacrifice between the horns of the altar. So this is actually in the psalm itself. And so we know very, very clearly that this was used as a quote unquote song of ascent. That is uh, if we want to, you know, kind of imagine the setting, we've got Israelites who have streamed into Jerusalem during a, a, a feast, a, a festival, and they're in a procession walking up to offer sacrifices at the temple, and they're singing this psalm as they as they go. So that's a, a very clear example of how they functioned. Other other examples might be, say, Psalm 45, in which we've got a writer kind of extolling the greatness of the Davidic king and saying how wonderful the king is and saying, you know, may your reign be blessed, things like that. This is pretty clearly what what scholars want to call a coronation psalm. That is, you know, just like you look at, you know, the British monarchy today and and the the queen or whatever, and there's certain ceremonies in the abbey, and they they sing certain hymns, right? They're in English and they're British and whatever. But the the ancient Israelites did something similar. They would sing or or recite different poems, i.e. the psalms, in these coronation situations, installing a new king on the throne. So some of these, the the zitzim laban of some of these uh, psalms are just very, very clear. 
Next week, we will get into more details about the function of the Psalms in communal life and how the Psalms can be helpful for us in modern day. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about the details of Hebrew poetry with all of its parallelisms, or if you want to explore the intricacies of these communal songs, register for Dr. Shazer's course using the link in the episode notes or by going to israelbiblecenter.com. As a thank you for listening to this podcast, use the coupon code ISRAEL when you register and you'll receive a free surprise. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all of the good sounds you hear. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. I look forward to next week.